All right, the scripture reading, the Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at, at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb for the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield bare in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled, defied. This very day the Lord God will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord God does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel readings from the chapter of the book of Luke chapter 10. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, David and Goliath. Two very famous names and a very famous story that even from the time of Jesus, even from the time before Jesus, had entered into public vernacular in terms of people going, oh, this is like a David and Goliath battle. And that continues all the way up till today, right? When we see some of these um, epic sports competitions, we're like, oh, the underdog goes up against like the big university and wins. We're like, oh, it's a David and Goliath battle. Right? Or we know we have like social movements or TV shows and movies where the public defender who doesn't have any funding and any money goes up against the epic lawyer who has political connections and millions of dollars. Right? So you, you know this David and Goliath story. And what I would like for us to do today is to make sure that we don't minimize this story to the way we use it in public spheres. So we don't want to go, um, God will help you fight your giants. I have nothing against that statement. I think it is true to a certain extent, but it's just rather flat when it comes to this David and Goliath story. We want to dig a little further. We also want to make sure that we don't let David and Goliath become this bubble story that is just the two of them floating around from which we extract some kind of theological meaning. We want to pull it down into scripture 
the long story of scripture and we want to pull it down into reality and just ask what is the bigger thing going on and I think the more questions we ask the more we dig into the deep richness of what is going on so that is our task today um, so Behind a lot of this stuff is this question, this ongoing question of who is the rightful ruler of Israel? All biblical text would say God is the rightful ruler of Israel. But when we're looking at the historical development of the Israelite group of people, we see that just this theoretical understanding that God is the ruler is actually really a hard way to live a communal life. And so they've had all of these human leaders and hence we've entered into the time of the judges. And since we were in the time of the judges last week with Ruth, then I'll pull on Ruth, the story that we talked about last week, because an aspect of that story was how is God active in the lives of his people? And we see the goodness even of God raising up a leader through the descendants of Ruth to be God is using the people who are of great hesed, the people who are acting with that loyalty, that fervent covenant loyalty towards God and towards his people. So we need to keep an eye on that because the end of Ruth was pointing us towards David. And so we're going to pick up David and we'll see, like as we, as we kind of make our way through this, even with David as a righteous king, it's almost a, um, a false peak in our story because we think we've arrived, but then it falls on the other side. And, and we're still longing for who is the rightful ruler, who is the rightful king of Israel, which is then going to point us in the Jesus direction. But we'll get there. So um, as I always like to do, we're going to set the stage. So we're going to ask these initial questions before digging into the text, where and when, or when and where, because I'm going to start with the when. And I want to start first by looking at the book of Samuel. So this first and second Samuel is how we call it, but it really belongs as one entire unit. And it starts in the days of the judges. So Samuel is the last of the judge. And he's going to push us from the time of the judges into the time of the kings and kingdom. It's a time of massive development in Israelite society. We see it archeologically even in the, the types of pottery, the types of homes that they were building in. There's a huge massive cultural development at this time, including the way that they're going to rule themselves. And so we're transitioning into this kingship idea, and how do you have a king who rules you? Well, Saul is the first king in Israel, and we're meant to look at Saul and just pay very careful, close attention to him, recognizing that in the time of the judges, they had a very hard time remembering the things that God had done for them and staying loyal to God. And so now we have a king. And so can we change the way we behave? Are we going to be any better at remembering the things that God has done and remaining loyal to God? Okay, so when we're reading through the book of Samuel, um, we, have the early, we have the story of Samuel, the passing the baton and anointing of Saul. And in the early days of Saul, so now we're in chapters 13 and 14, 
Saul and his son Jonathan are often in conflict with the Philistines. It's just over and over and over. And in that conflict, we're learning little tidbits about Saul's character, who he is as a ruling figure for the Israelites. Well, then we get to chapter 15, where Saul messes up massively. And it's, there's a shift of God's favor moving from Saul to David. And chapter 16 is where Samuel goes and anoints David as king. And then we get chapter 17. That's where we are right now. And chapter 17 is this huge exclamation point. Although as we get through the end of Samuel and into 2 Kings, we find that it doesn't stay on a high and it starts to fall. But we're at this crescendo point where everything about the way we've been reading the book kind of shifts and we go into a whole new gear. Now, where are we physically? Because I love this stuff. So this is where, did you already find your map in your bulletin? Yes, with enthusiasm, I heard. Okay, so pull out the map and look at the side that has the two ovals, the green and the red oval. Just want to point out what's going on geographically. Um, and so we have the group of Israelites and the group of Philistines. The Israelites are the green oval. So they are up in the hill country. And then we have these pin markers there. Gibeah is where Saul lives and he is ruling. It's like the, it's, it's a little bit of a capital. It's not quite capital, but that is the central point right now for this first king of Israel. Bethlehem, of course, because David is from Bethlehem and Hebron, because it's one of the most um, dynamic cities in the hill country, the Judean hill country. It sits up on a plateau. All of these roads come up and converge there. So a very powerful city. So Israelites are up in the hill country. The Philistines are that reddish colored oval. And there are five cities that kind of mark out Philistine territory. So Philistines have a deadlock on the coastal plain and all of the trade that's going up and down the coastal plain. Now you may notice that these two ovals don't connect. There's a gap between them and that's on purpose. This, that area between the gap, between the two ovals is an interesting piece of land that the Philistines nor the Israelites always had control of all the time. It was a land that kind of ping-ponged back and forth depending on who was the strongest. So the Philistines would push in and take it. The Israelites would push down out of the hill country and take it. And we see this pushing back and forth in that gap of land. Now I drew in one road because I wanted just to mark for you. It's the one that goes from Gezer. It's like towards the top of the ovals. And it goes from Gezer up to Gibeah of Saul. That road is the most valuable of the roads that go from Philistine land up into the hill country. The ascent up the hill country, up the hills, is not so hard. I mean, it's always hard because you're going uphill, but it's the easier of the routes. When you arrive just barely east of Gibeah, you end up on this huge plateau and a convergence of roads. And so that is where we see the Israelites and the Philistines during the whole of the beginning of Saul's reign. The Philistines constantly go up that road by Gezer up towards Gibeah. They're often able to get into the hill country and then the Israelites are having to push them out. And that is this flow we're watching all through 1 Samuel 
until 1 Samuel chapter 17. So on this map, keep your eye on where Gath is. And notice how Gath is just to the west of a gap between the ovals. And then turn your map over to the other side. So this map is oriented a little bit differently. And for those watching from home, I'm really sorry because I forgot to give the map pictures uh, to put on the slides. But you can pause the video and look it up. Google has a map. Um, so Gath is now at the bottom of the map. And notice you're looking to the east as you look up the map. And you're going to pass, there's a valley, it's kind of hard to pick out here, but there's a valley that snakes its way from Gath to Azekah and then to Soho. And then notice the road that uh, comes from this valley, it branches into two. And so once you make your way through this valley called the Ayla Valley, you have two options. You can go up the hill country to Bethlehem, hang a left and end up at Gibeah of Saul. Or you can go like off towards the right, or this would be to the southeast, and you end up up on the hill country at Hebron. And if you take Hebron, then you control a whole bunch of roads and a whole bunch of agriculture. So I always argue this is the next best valley. If the first one, the northern one doesn't work, this is the one that you want to take. And if any of you have youth that were on the youth retreat, we played with all kinds of Google Maps doing like setting the story here. So talk to your youth or find a youth and tell them, ask them, what does it look like to like, you know, move your way through the valley? Okay, so there's all kinds of really great data, geographical data in this text. We just need to snag it and put it into reality so that we feel the tension that is in the text. So we're going to start as we're entering chapter 17. And in the very first verse, it says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soho, which belonged to Judah and encamped between Soho and Azekah and Ephestamim. Now that reads like a really boring statement until you map it. And so now you go, okay, they've left Gath. They've pushed into that gap between the ovals. They've made it past Azekah, so they're midway into the valley. They've already taken Soho. And as you can tell on the map, once you take Soho, you've taken the entire valley. And now the only thing left to do is to choose which route you're taking into the hills. And Soho was supposed to belong to Judah. And so that first sentence setting the stage, it's not just a blah, 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 blah. Let's get to the action. This is a, the Philistines are on the doorstep of Israelite territory and the Israelites are terrified. And that tension is what you, you get already in those first couple verses. Now, there are beautiful things that we could pull out of this chapter. And so I'm gonna say, like I did last week, your homework should you choose to do homework during the summer, would be to carefully and slowly read this chapter and ask yourself with every detail that is given, does that match any detail you know in the Hebrew Bible? It's so, it's so fun. You'll be like pulling up all kinds of, of things. So I'm just gonna highlight one or two, but the invitation stands for you to go do that for yourself. Okay, so the scene is set. Philistines are way into the valley. Israelites are ter 
terrified. And then we get this Philistine character. So we get Goliath of Gath. And so in verse 4, when it mentions Goliath of Gath, we get these details. His height was six cubits and a span. And the problem here is we have no idea how big a cubit is. So in trying to determine the exact size of Goliath, that's really hard. And if we bring all the different texts we have that talk about this story, Goliath is anywhere from six foot nine to 10 foot six. Now granted, that's a huge span, but take the smallest of that, six foot nine, that's huge. My brother is six foot eight and in modern day homes has a hard time fitting through doorways, right? So even if he's the shortest of the possible heights, he's gigantic. And then the text goes on to give us these really interesting details of the type of armor he's wearing. Now we can compare this to the types of armor that we found in archeology. span This is time period specific armor. And it's correct, it matches this 10th century time period. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is, why are the biblical writers talking about it? Because of all the battle scenes we have, we don't have champion fighters whose armor is being described in the detail that Goliath's armor is being described. So why are we told all of that data, what is it that we are supposed to get out of the text? And this is one of the times when I would encourage us to think about it as a picture. If you were to draw this, how would you depict this large man in bronze armor from head to toe standing in the Middle Eastern sun? Because the data is really fun. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of tracking down the data but the picture is what you're supposed to get. And the picture is telling you about the character of Goliath. So if you have that picture, I don't know if you've already formed one in your mind, but you have a gigantic man kind of lumbering into the valley and he's shiny, sparkly under the sun. He'd probably hate the fact that I just used sparkle to describe him, but right there's a bronze reflection of the sun which makes him more machine than man and scary, tank-like. If we were to use all the modern vocabulary, he is the modern tank lumbering into the valley. Okay, so keep this picture in mind. And he comes into the valley and in verse 10, you know, he throws out this, this phrase, today I defy the ranks of Israel, give me a man that we may fight together. He's, he's putting himself in the, the position of a champion. And we have lots of these champion stories, one who represents the army. And as he hurls these incense, uh, um, not incense, insults, thank you, insults towards Israel, it's in an honor shame culture. This is a call to battle, which is how he's intending it. And it really is going to take a champion to lift off this insult off of the Israelites. Okay, so what is interesting is now the text is going to mention Saul. Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now Saul, 
the first king of Israel. So granted, he has to pave his own way. But if we go back and we're looking at the early days of Saul, even right before Saul, so if we were to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Israelite people are asking Samuel for a king. And Samuel tries to warn them away from that. You don't want to do that. There's all of these issues that come with having a king. And the Israelites say in verse 20, no, give us a king because we want to be just like our neighbors and we want someone to go out and fight our battles for us. And now we're in a position where the person who should be going out to face Goliath is hanging back, pulling back, and is actually leading his people in a reaction of fear more than anything else. Okay, now there's a paragraph break here of which many verses are missing, where the biblical writer actually changes the camera angle and we go swooping up into the hill country to Bethlehem. And we meet up with Jesse, Jesse the grandson of Ruth. And Jesse is there and Jesse is worried. He has three older boys who are all with Saul down in the Elah Valley. And so he's going to send his youngest, David, to go down and check on the boys. Now it's interesting because if you read it with a map in hand, you could go, this worry of Jesse is multi-layered. He's probably very anxious about the well-being of his boys. But what happens if the Israelites lose the battle in the Elah Valley? One road, should the Philistines choose to take it, comes directly to Bethlehem, which is the next city that's going to be demolished. So David, let me know if I need to pack things and if we're heading into the wilderness for a bit. Are the Philistines on their way up or not? Right? So David goes down. Now, I'm choosing to focus on the way various characters in this text are being depicted. And I'm focusing primarily on Goliath and on David. But we could do this with David's older brother. We could do this with Saul. We could do this like what are, what are the characteristics being highlighted in this chapter? But David hears these insults and he knows I can do something, actually not me, but God can do something through me. And so David volunteers to go. So now we have this interesting conversation between David and Saul. And look at how Saul is going to look at David. So in verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistines to fight with him. For you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now, this is interesting because that word boy and the word youth are the exact same word. So it's just the Hebrew word has a huge range of meaning. So these are both accurate translations. A little bit, I would argue, a little bit of the problem is the picture it creates in your head. Because if you're thinking that Saul is calling David a boy, then you're like, oh, He's seven years old, or he's a 10-year-old boy who is in this situation. But boy and youth mean the same thing. And the Hebrew range of meaning for that word is anywhere from like a young toddler all the way up to a man who is not yet married, which means David could very easily be 17 or 18 or 19. Like he's, and I would argue he is full grown at this point in time. Okay, so hold on to that just a moment, because that also changes the way we read the story. So David has to defend himself and defend why he thinks that he can go with the Lord's help 
to face this giant of a man, this tank of a guy who has been fighting since he was a young man. And so jump down to verse 37, where it says, David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine, right? Recognizing it was the Lord's involvement and intervention that saved me and helped me confront enemies that we would think are bigger and stronger than I. And so later on, Saul is going to say to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And I personally think this is interesting because we just had a whole bunch of bronze show up at the beginning of the chapter. Bronze is Goliath's clothing, right? Bronze is what Goliath has. And so we have Saul, we're getting this, you know, Saul is looking at David and being like, you know, who are you? You're an un unmarried man. You haven't really entered the army yet. But here, I guess I'll let you go fight him, but try to be like him and put on the type of armor that Goliath is using. So it's like, pretend to be the kind of warrior that Goliath is being. So David straps on Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk and pay attention to why. He was not used to them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I am not used to them. Now this also, you know, if you're looking for art pieces of David and Goliath, David is always like this big and he's about seven or 10. And if they depict David putting on Saul's armor, it's like those um, stories you get, you know, when like young boys put on their dad's suit jacket. And it's like the arms come down, like past their hands. You know, we think that's what's going on. That's not what's going on. What do we know about Saul? Again, when he was first uh, anointed king, his physical stature. Saul was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So Saul was a big guy. And David doesn't say, I can't wear these because they don't fit, because they're too big. He says, I can't wear them because I'm not used to them. And this veneer, although it looks like a warrior, is not what I am accustomed to being in. So now we're going to move to how does Goliath see David? So we've seen how Saul sees David, but now what about Goliath? So David pushes out into the valley, and in verse 42, it says, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And this same word youth, so he's an uh, unmarried young guy, so he's younger than Goliath. But Rudy, Rudy is interesting, that's a term we don't really use very often, it's out of fashion. Um, but Rudy has this um, this red, like we say Rudy when we're talking like you have health in your cheeks, you have a red color in your cheeks, right? The Hebrew word is also connected to the word red, which has all these wonderful alliterations to it, one of which is a connection to earth because Israelite soil, healthy soil, is reddish in color. And so pause just for a moment 
And this is going to feel like a stretch to you, but I promise it's not a stretch in like the actual Hebrew language. If we think of the first humans when they were created, it was Adam, human, that was made from the Adama, earth. So the Adam and Adama, you can hear even in the words their relationship to each other. So the truly earthly one is the truly human one. And so when the Philistine looks at David and sees him as a youth and Rudy and handsome, he's like, he's the true Rudy one. He's the true reddish one. He's the true earthy one, which makes you go, he's the true human one. Now, isn't that interesting? If we think again of the picture being formed, not just the data, Goliath came rolling onto the scene like a machine, big, gigantic, reflecting the sun, impossible to go up against. David comes onto the scene by himself, but the, the writer is going, ah, but he's the true human in the story. And then we all sit on the edges of our seat and go, now this is interesting. Because now David is going to go up against the insults that Goliath has been hurling. So David says in verse 45, he says to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. And, and this too has long history and the Lord who has always said, I am your true leader. I am the one who is your protector. I am the one you will find rest under my wings. I am the one who goes out to, to fight for you. And that's exactly what David says of who God is. And at the end of this, he says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And so then we get some of the details involved in this battle, which is also very interesting because in the type of armor and the type of weapons that Goliath has, although strong and formidable, they're only effective if you go into hand-to-hand -hand combat. And David is approaching Goliath, and you can almost see in the story this Goliath thinks David is coming to fight him with just a little stick in his hand. But David comes with what... David is accustomed to wearing his tools of the trade, and it comes with a slingshot. Now, these slingshots are not the kind, you know, with the two rubber bands and you pull something back and you sling it like that, because those are not dangerous. No, the slingshot that is historically accurate is a long piece of woven cotton, and there's a pouch in the middle. And the person who's going to use the slingshot holds both ends of the string, so the pouch is down here. And you swing it this way until you get up a lot of speed and then you let it go. You let one end of the string go and the rock goes flying. And you can watch all kinds of videos of this online. There's a bunch of people who do this, even today. There's competitions, it's really great. You can get a stone to go 60 miles an hour so it looks humble and it looks not threatening because it's just rope and it's just a rock. Except David knows how to use that. And David has most likely been doing target practice out in the wilderness as he's bored to death watching sheep, right? And so David has perfected this skill. 
And using a slingshot is a long distance weapon. So where Goliath has the power at hand-to-hand -hand combat, David has the upper hand in fighting from a greater distance away. And David wins, right? And so he probably, he hits Goliath, it stuns him most likely, and he falls over and then David goes and chops off his head. This shift is where we start to move from the reign of Saul to the reign of David. And it's not the reign of David so much, but the whole rest of 1 Samuel is Saul being super suspicious of David and Saul's character crumbling exponentially with each chapter and David's valor being proven chapter after chapter, which we think is really great until we move into 2 Samuel and then into Kings and we realize, ah, we're gonna fall off the cliff and it doesn't quite work. And we, the reader, are left with all these questions that are, okay, so this is good. We have a righteous king of the Israelites, but when he falters, then what? What's our next bit of hope? That there's going to be a righteous ruler. What is God's kingdom led by God's king going to look like? And all of those kinds of questions, I mean, the prophets address those kinds of questions, but those questions are what drive us to the New Testament for those of us who also read the New Testament. Because all of those questions of, is there going to be a second Adam? Who is the one who is truly human? Who is the one who can take down the powers that seem too big? Who is the one, if we were to follow the Gospel of John, um, and the series we did not that long ago, because John was saying the signs that John talks about are all to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the rightful king of God's kingdom. And when we look through Jesus's um, ministry and we go, what does God's kingdom look like? And in the gospel stories, we're going to reach this other point where Jesus is going to pull a lot of attention to the fact that God's kingdom is different than human empires. And after they have that conversation, Jesus is like, just watch me. I'll show you what the true king of God's people does. He goes and he dies and he redeems humanity and he ushers in God's kingdom. And then he opens the door for you and says, do you wanna participate in the building of this kingdom? And that is part of what we do as we go through our worship services on Sunday, because we end with an invitation to the table, an invitation to remembering that, you know what God's king of his people does to usher in a God-designed kingdom? He breaks open his body and he serves. And he constantly says, I do this not in my own authority, but because of God. And I'm doing this to reflect who God is. And then invites all of us to, to follow in his footsteps. So David and Goliath, not an isolated story, one that we can pull interesting data out of, and one that points forward to Jesus as the one who is the actual true king. Will you pray with me? Holy God, there's something wonderful and beautiful and exciting about looking back over your story and looking at the ways in which you have engaged your people and you have intervened in human history and you have been communicating 
and trying to cast vision and trying to get people to have the imagination to see how extraordinary your kingdom is and the beauty that is to be found therein. And so thank you for this record of your story. And as we leave this building today, may we remember that you are the true king and we are investing in your kingdom work so that people around us in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, look to see what all of us collectively are building and they ask the question, who is the king that you serve? And in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.